Hello, everyone joining online or watching the recording after, after the event. I am Frank Place, the director of the CGIR Research Program on Policies, Institutions, and Markets. It gives me great pleasure to welcome all of you to this webinar on feminization of agriculture. This is actually the first of two webinars on this topic, the second to be held on July 7th. The reason for two is that there is a collection of nine case studies with about half being presented in each session. I do want to give thanks to Canada's uh, International Development Research Council, IDRC, for enabling us to have as many as nine case studies. This collaborative set of studies was one of three that PIM funded through the gender platform when we hosted it between 2017 and 2019. Another set, set of studies were on gender dynamics and seed systems, funded in 2017, and gender dynamics and value chains, awarded in 2019 and funded in 2020. The three topics re reflect priority research issues of gender research coordinators at the various CGIR centers. Let me introduce the moderator for today, who will provide opening remarks and then introduce the other speakers in the program. Rhiannon Pyburn is a Netherlands CGIR Partnership Senior Expert and Senior Advisor uh, Gender and Agriculture at the Royal Tropical Institute, or as we know of as KIT. She was the coordinator of the gender platform while it was under PIM, our Policies, Institutions, and Markets program, and she now leads the PIM cluster where that work is being completed. Before handing it over to Rhiannon, let me mention how our webinar will work. The question and answer period will be at the end of the program after all of the speakers and the discussion. Throughout the presentations, I encourage you to type in your questions in the chat window on the right side of your screen at any time. We'll be collating them and posing them to the, uh, to the speakers afterwards. Please type in your name and organization along with your question. Uh, we will try to organize them as best as we can uh, uh, by topic as well. So when you enter them at any time, that'll be very useful for us. Uh, finally, we are recording the webinar and we'll make it available on the PIM website shortly after the event. Um, so you can share that, share that uh, uh, news with all your colleagues who couldn't make it today. Uh, with that, uh, let me turn it over to Rhiannon, who will take it from here. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much, Frank. And uh, good morning, afternoon, evening to all of you, wherever you are. It's a real pleasure to be with you today and to share some of what we've been learning um, uh, about the feminization of agriculture since we first put out a call for proposals in, in 2019. Um, we have nine grants altogether uh, that were uh, supported through the Policies, Institutions and Markets Research Program. And the idea of these, these grants was to challenge some of the prevailing assumptions around the feminization of agriculture that, that we were seeing in the literature and in practice. So we were seeing that the term feminization of agriculture was being and is being used widely, but not consistently. Um, two main narratives can be drawn out. Uh, Cheryl Doss, who you'll uh, hear more from later in this webinar, uh, and others are, um, have written a book chapter um, that covers some of this. And from that book chapter, they pull out these two, two main narratives. One is negative, and that's that the feminization of agriculture uh, is about, well, leads to increased workload on women without the resources needed for success in agriculture. And the idea that women are left behind as men move into other sectors or, uh, or migrate. 
The other narrative is that the feminization of agriculture is an opportunity, and it's an opportunity for women's empowerment, gender equality, as women become more visible and as their voice increases. So often linked to the feminization uh, of agriculture is migration. So the idea that as men migrate, women are playing a bigger role in agriculture. And we saw migration as a consistent theme in many of the proposals that we looked at um, back in 2019, and including the five uh, projects that are being presented today. The overall narrative, prevailing narrative about migration in relation to the feminization of agriculture and the one that we're, we're challenging through these, these projects is that, well, first of all, men are migrating out of rural households and communities, that women are left behind. And we do put that in quotation marks. We have a lot of um, thinking that's been done around the, the challenges of, of that uh, idea. Um, the idea also that farming continues as usual after men migrate, that migration increases over time and that eventually everybody migrates out, so there's no one left to farm and that migration is one way and that it's linear. So these, this is the prevailing narrative and this is some of what these um, uh, projects work to nuance and to sort of unpack some of the, some also of the vagueness around the term itself. Today we're gonna hear from five of these nine projects and I, I asked the um, uh, presenters to uh, put on their cameras. Um, we will first hear from Wei Zhang. She is uh, a senior research fellow at the Environment and Production Technology Division of the International Food Policy Research Institute. And she'll be presenting today on migration and gender dynamics and irrigation governance in Nepal. We will then hear from Jordan Chamberlain. He is a spatial economist at the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center, CIMIT and he'll be presenting on a rural outmigration and the feminization of agriculture in sub-Saharan Africa, and that's a multi-country and a mixed methods study. We'll then turn to Ana Maria Paez Valencia from the World Agroforestry um, Center, ICRAF. She is a gender scientist and a gender research coordinator, and she'll be presenting gender and generational dynamics and land restoration amid male outmigration and look, uh, working to strengthen the evidence base through cross-country analysis. Then we'll hear from Marcus. Marcus Helenen is a senior research officer and coordinator um, of gender and social inclusion research, equal opportunities, gender, justice, and tenure at the Center for International Forestry, C4. He's presenting today a project on, that's uh, entitled Scrutinizing the Feminization of Agriculture Hypothesis a study on the gendered evolution of labor uh, in agriculture in Indonesia, 1993 to 2014. And uh, finally, we will hear from Nozomi Kawarazuka. She is a gender scientist in the Social and Nutritional Sciences Division of the International Potato Center, SIP. Uh, and her um, presentation is entitled, When the Strong Arms Leave the Farms, Gender and labor, uh, labor migration in Vietnam. So after these five presentations, uh, we've asked Cheryl Doss to, um, to reflect on some of the cross-cutting findings. So Cheryl is an associate professor and senior uh, department lecturer in the development of econ uh, in development economics at the university at Oxford University. 
uh, in the Department of International Development. Uh, she's also leader of the Cross-Cutting Gender Research and Coordination Flagship in the Policies, Institutions, and Markets Research Program. And uh, we've worked together uh, since 2019 uh, with these um, research teams in thinking more about the feminization of agriculture and, and how to, um, what we can learn from the projects about it. Uh, so we'll come back to Cheryl um, after the five presentations before we move into the questions and answers. Uh, final note before we turn to uh, uh, Wei Zheng, um, these projects were all initiated pre-COVID. So to bear that in mind as you're hearing from the, the various presenters. So with that, Wei, I will turn to you and invite you to uh, begin. Thank you, Rana. Um, slide, please. <clears throat> if you can uh, move the slide, thank you. Um, yes, yeah, slide, please. Nepal has a long history of irrigation, including um, uh, not only government built and management uh, managed uh, systems, but a long history and uh, widespread presence of farmer managed irrigation systems. Many of them um, are both labor and knowledge uh, skill intensive in both the operational and maintenance uh, of the, the structure uh, and the upper, uh, organizational infrastructure of water user associations or WUAs. Both the governance and management of irrigation systems in Nepal have historically been uh, male domains. This reflects a combination of factors, both normative and practical. Patriarchal norms um, that define public decision-making spaces as male, notions that heavy labor involved, and concepts that menstruating women would ritually or physically pollute water, combined with the practical difficulties of women finding time away from household duties to attend meetings or to travel long distance to work on uh, the canals, restrict women's participation in irrigation. Um, the major aspect of male farmers' roles or their key contributions to irrigation include uh, labor, cash, and in-kind contributions for construction or maintenance. Uh, less obvious, but also very important contributions are the knowledge and decision-making in governance that keeps the system functioning. The resilience of system to the effect of male migration is likely to depend on whether and how the men's contributions to the systems are met. A widespread male migration from rural areas is a major force shaping uh, agrarian society um, in Nepal. Um, one particular important area affected is the governance and management of local public goods, such as irrigation. This highlights the importance of understanding how water user associations organizational functioning evolves, internal and external factors driving the evolution process, the extent of technical and institutional innovations, and the outcome in terms of system functioning. Uh, slide, please. To address these questions, we present findings from a mixed method study, including a phone survey of 336 
Water User Association leaders from seven provinces in Nepal. This is complemented by a qualitative study of 10 irrigation systems conducted by Dr. Pachanda Padan of Farmer Managed uh, Irrigation Promotion Trust. He has been studying these, many of these systems for decades. Because of time constraint, I'm going to focus on the phone survey findings, which I was uh, involved in. Slide, please. In terms of institutional change, uh, overall, there's changes in rules to allow women's participation. But these changes are not necessarily related to male migration, but also to changes in laws, official rules about water user associations. Uh, male migration was found significantly associated with higher presence of rules for women's membership in their own rights, allowing women to participate in member meetings and uh, for alternatives to labor contributions, such as cash contributions or contracting labor. In terms of women's roles, overall, women's participation in irrigation system um, increases uh, through, although increased participation does not necessarily mean greater decision-making power. So we found that male migration is significantly associated with higher attendance by women in member meetings, but they were, women were not found to speak up more. Uh, women are also um, participating in canal cleaning uh, more uh, where they, there is male migration. Women prefer to use remittances uh, um, to hire labor as their first option, uh, and they contribute labor only if male labor are not available. In terms of technological change, uh, we found male migration positively associated with women plowing land in the absence of men and farming mechanization with far harvesters and threshers. And this, this farming mechanization is um, um, uh, mostly in Tarai because of the topography. Uh, we didn't find significant difference in terms of irrigation technology change, such as the use of sprinkler systems or dripping irrigation. Uh, in terms of outcome, based on descriptive results from the phone survey, it's uh, kind of encouraging that there is relatively low reported incidence of potential negative outcomes, um, such as there's uh, because of labor shortage causing um, deterioration or uh, a lot of filing of land. Slide, please. Uh, coming to our contributions to the body of literature, our mixed method allow us to test the significance of association between male migration and some of the key variables uh, to answer the research questions. Uh, further insights are provided from the qualitative study to complete the pictures. Uh, we want to stress um, the need for system perspective to holistically understand the issue of mi migration and gender dynamics in irrigation governance. Male migration isn't the only thing that's going on, in particular in terms of women's roles. Um, there's a, a lot of uh, multiple factors that contribute to changes, uh, not just migration. 
such as road infrastructure in, in development, acceptability of women riding bicycles, mobile phone availability, legal changes such as um, that uh, the passage of government law that that require women representation in um, w water user association uh, positions. Um, also um, important to look at what happens um, outside of irrigation. Um, uh, a lot of uh, going on in other sectors such as labor market, mechanization, remittances, income, um, all these pieces are part of the system that responds, not just irrigation. And finally, um, the implication of male migration uh, in decision-making in irrigation is shaped by women's agency. Women have diverse choices, and these choices are shaped and influenced by a lot of factors. For example, availability of agricultural labor, uh, availability of maintenances, uh, remittances, uh, income to pay for labor, uh, mechanization and leadership of a few women who are more willing to engage in male uh, space. Thank you. Over. Great. Thanks so much, Wei. We'll move now to, to Jordan. Hi, everybody. I uh, hope you can hear me. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm Jordan Chamberlain again, uh, and I'll be talking about our project entitled Rural Outmigration and the Feminization of Agriculture in Sub-Saharan Africa, a multi-country mixed method study. And this is work um, we've been pushing along uh, for, for a while with, with many participants, and I'd like to acknowledge um, uh, Christina Ramos, Mariam Garib, Lucy Njogu, uh, and Ana Maria, who's also on the call for, for addressing different bits of this. But basically what we tried to do in this work is to interrogate the stylized narrative that Rhiannon kind of presented to us at, at the, a few minutes ago. And, and as, first of all, is out-migration really male-dominated or, or to what extent is that? Or does it depend on what kind of migration we're talking about? And then on the feminization side are, in fact, sending households or communities feminizing their agricultural production, and if so, how? And we're asking this at scale, right, using data from uh, different sources across the continent to really um, try to get a sense of, of how robust the stylized story is, where does it begin to diverge, where do we need nuance, and to, um, to better break it apart that way. We're also comparing perspectives from alternative empirical windows into these phenomena, if you like. So we've got qualitative work that we carried out in Ethiopia and Tanzania uh, about a year and a half ago, I think. And we're also using survey data from four different countries. Uh, this is nationally representative data, so it gives us a good sense of what's happening at scale. Data from Ethiopia, Zambia, Tanzania, Nigeria, and Uganda. Uh, these are all panel data sets as well, so we're able to kind of exploit some of the repeat observations of individuals and households. And so one of the things that we're asking here is, is there concordance with kind of our understanding of this stylized story, the relationship between migration and feminization, depending on kind of which empirical window you're taking? You know, do, do, does the information that we're driving from the qualitative work um, 
does it does it coincide with the with the data from the survey work or does it add a new dimension or or does it kind of illuminate some systematic blind spots in the way that we typically analyze survey data so that's kind of what we're looking at um next slide please Next slide, please. I think I have a delay, possibly. Okay, so um, this work is, is very much ongoing. We've dived deepest in Ethiopia um, and have a paper that's been in review for a while. Um, the the cross-country stuff in the Tanzania work, um, we're packaging up as as, um, as other papers that will, will follow hopefully soon. We've been working on this for a while, though. So what I'm going to highlight, though, are kind of key findings across all these different uh, uh, bits of work that, that we've been looking at, and we'll try to highlight where they kind of refer to one country in particular. So first of all, just in terms of the patterns of migration, we're finding that uh, migration, depending on how you define it, is not at all a male-dominated activity, right? So under the most generic definition of, of rural migration, um, rural out-migration, uh, it's split evenly between men and women. Now, when you start to kind of break that apart further to look at work motives um, versus family motives, uh, urban destinations, uh, temporary moves. All of those are more common for males than for females, but they're not exclusively male patterns of, of, uh, of movement. And when we think about work motives in particular, um, what, the, what the qualitative work is indicating is that almost always there are kind of multiple reasons motivating a move. And I think that sometimes this is um, this is masked a bit with survey data, which often, if it asks anything about uh, motives, will will we'll ask the the respondent to identify primary motive. And so, what we some of the gendered results we may see may reflect gendered ways of identifying the primary motive rather than uh, the underlying uh, economic versus or, or, or wage seeking versus family motives. Um, now, one interesting thing in the studies we've looked at or the, the different countries that we've looked at in terms of international migration, that's fairly small rates in most of these countries. But in, in, in certain communities in Ethiopia, it's very prevalent and it's dominated by women. About 60 percent of on, on average of the international out migrants in, in our survey data are females. And that plays out in different ways within different communities. So the story um, really starts to take on nuance once you dig at it a bit. But we're also finding a strong spatial structure to out-migration. So I guess the, you know, the, the, the most salient feature of this is that out-migration rates decrease with remoteness. Um, and, and that's, we're seeing that in, in all the countries that we've looked at so far. Quickly, in terms of impacts, um, and again, most of, of these findings are, well, we've, you know, this is really drawing on the Ethiopia work where we're kind of most confident of, of our, our statements about impact, um, cautious as they may be. Um, but generally what we're seeing is the following. So male out migration does in fact increase female labor allocations to agricultural activities um, in a fairly pronounced way. It has more muted impacts on women's agricultural decision-making, but some of that may depend on how we're, how we're record asking those, those uh, decision-making questions in survey data. Um, something that we address in our paper. Um, and we're also seeing some other, uh, we, you know, we poked around with some, some uh, additional kind of outcome variables. And one of the interesting things that we're seeing is that male out migration does increase uh, renting out of land by female headed households. So it could be kind of uh, 
um, one of the factors that's stimulating the, the development of rural rental land markets. Um, uh, also very interesting finding. In terms of female out-migration, in Ethiopia, again, what we're seeing are larger remittances generally, and this is particularly for the for the women that are, are going overseas to work. Um, but most of that's captured by male-headed households. Um, so that's something that um, is, is, is quite interesting in, in our study. Now, um, when we, I, I guess the, the one major thing to highlight about how the qualitative and, and quantitative work comes together is that um, particularly coming from the qualitative work, there, there appear to be very strong cultural constraints in both men's and women's ability to see agriculture as a valid domain of female expertise. Um, and so we would see this, for example, even when men were completely absent from the farm and females in the household were very clearly actively managing their farms and, uh, and exercising a lot of decision-making, they would kind of downplay that in the descriptions of that and, and, and refer to that almost as, as doing, um, you know, a job that's, you know, under duress and, and really that's outside of their, of the domain of expertise that they saw for themselves, which we found to be quite interesting. Next slide, please. So just kind of summarizing um, kind of what all of our results are, are contributing to the broader story here, you know, our, our collective um, uh, understanding of, of uh, the feminization of agriculture. First of all, um, you know, there's a danger in overgeneralizing. Um, stories are place dependent. The destinations, the, the gendered participation pattern in different migration uh, routes, um, are, are quite different from place to place. Ethiopia differs remarkably from elsewhere in our study, um, but there, you know, we really got insights into that um, most uh, strongly through the qualitative work. And it's, um, you know, there, there are likely to be other kind of very, um, you know, place dependent aspects of migration that we're observing in the household survey data. And it's not always clear how best to handle that. Measurement matters, uh, how we observe migration, uh, varies from survey to survey. Um, there's surprisingly, um, you know, many different ways that that that, uh, that this is recorded in survey instruments, and we've kind of had to deal with some of those differences in, in our work in bringing these together. Um, feminized agricultural outcomes. So we've talked about management versus labor. Again, uh, I think a, a lot of you know what we're struggling with right now is really understanding, um, you know, how much credence to give to information that we're getting from the survey data where uh, the, the rates of, of female cont plot control as well as decision making are, are really small relative to you know the, their their um, share of the labor force for example and it's not clear whether that's just the way people are responding to surveys reflecting cultural norms or if that's actually reflecting um, the, the way that, that everybody in the household feels about their agency. Uh, subjective accounts diverge from objective measures. So we saw this most clearly uh, in the qualitative work, again, referring to Ethiopia specifically. Um, but, you know, does, does this, you know, how to unpack that, I think, is something that we're still struggling with. I mean, it could reflect hidden agency or it could reflect that um, uh, we just don't know how to interpret that yet. It's, it's something that we're continuing to think about. Overall, what our work is, is contributing is, in general, support for a feminizing agriculture, but both the welfare and developmental kind of meanings of these changes, I think, aren't fully clear yet. 
So women, almost universally in the qualitative work, do report being stressed out, right? You know, having to do more, uh, to do more with less when, when men leave their households and their communities. Um, and it's, it's, uh, they report having to hire in labor and having to rent out land, something that we're seeing in the, in the survey data as well, which is an interesting finding. On the other hand, they clearly are um, experiencing more control over the day-to-day -day running of, of farms. And, uh, and what this may be signaling is kind of the longer-term broadening of, you know, the cultural constraints around women's economic ambits. Um, so, you know, what we may be observing is, is kind of um, some of the changes we may be seeing may have kind of uh, effects on, on women's agency in a, in, a, in a broader kind of cultural sense further down the road, but time will tell. Anyhow, uh, th those are the highlights that I wanted to share with you all. And thank you. That's it for me. Great. Thanks so much, Jordan. Uh, Anna Maria, we'll, we'll turn to you now. Okay. Um, yeah, so I'm also going to talk about a mixed method study in sub-Saharan Africa. This time focusing on Burkina Faso and Kenya and building on two land restoration projects. This work was done uh, together with colleagues from the Alliance of Biodiversity and SEAT. Um, they were working in Burkina Faso and we in the World of Forestry were working in Kenya. The work then provided us the opportunity to compare the interactions between gender, generation, restoration and migration in two very different contexts in West and East Africa. Um, so in Burkina, we have the center north region with uh, seasonal male outmigration in pursuit of artisanal gold mining. Um, here, restoration efforts were facing challenges because of an apparent disconnect between those who own and make decisions about the land, presumably the main migrants, those that provide the labor for land restoration, male day laborers, and those actually reached by the project capacity strengthening activities who were increasingly the women left behind. And we have the eastern drylands of Kenya with high vulnerability to soil erosion and unreliable rainfall, where a high proportion of men and to a lesser extent women are seeking off-farm employment to diversify their incomes. And in this context, the, the project that aims at scaling land on, on farm land restoration options uh, identify that women, I'm still in the first one, sorry. <laughs> I'm still in the first slide. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, in this, um, the, the project identified that women were increasingly making their own farming decisions and participating in farming activities uh, where they were not involved before. Um, so our study looked at develop uh, a common framework and methodology to substantiate and explain these observations and uh, find out uh, how our patterns of decision-making, labor, knowledge, and the capacities of households shifting across gender and age as a result of migration, and uh, to what extent these changes influence the uptake of restorative practices and the distribution of benefits. So to respond to this question, we, we first look at the patterns of migration to understand who is moving, their age, their gender, where do they go, what do they do, do they come back and how often, and also the, what, what drives them to migrate, if they are looking for economic opportunities out of agriculture or it's just another, an option to, to diversify their livelihoods. 
then what are the impacts of these movements in terms of labor, in terms of capital? Do migrants send remittances to their families or is there families who support them in terms of this knowledge also? Do households lose knowledge and skills when, when one household members migrate? Um, or do these migrants stay involved in farming decisions? And then also what are the mediating factors? Uh, what are the factors that mediate these impacts? Um, we are looking then at strength of relationships, also at the periodicity and possibility of communication and, and the prevailing gender and, and social norms. Um, next slide. So now what do we find? Um, this table shows a summary of the main findings in both countries. And uh, it illustrates the similarities and differences in those patterns of migration and how they reflect on the farm and the household. The main difference is uh, that in Kenya, we're witnessing a more longer term migration where migrants leave for urban centers such as Nairobi or Mombasa and take jobs mainly outside of agriculture. Most of these men return to the farm for a few days each month or during the holidays but very few return specifically to work on the farm during peak times. They instead send money back home uh, that will often be using hiring labor to support farming activities. In Burkina Faso instead, we are looking at a more seasonal migration that overlaps with the dry seasons and is mainly driven by the income generating opportunities in gold planning and horticulture in neighboring areas. So migrants are mostly young men that go to these neighboring areas for several months a year to work as wage laborers, but they return to their homes as the rains come in May and onwards to farm with their families. Um, we also find that in both countries, migration has increased in the past, in the past years and, and is often part of a negotiated household strategy. And migrants are mostly younger men. In terms of the impacts, uh, for Kenya, we found that the greatest burden is the loss of farm labor and increasing women's workloads as they are taking up on activities that men used to do before, such as plowing and fencing. Uh, but then remittances are playing a central role in offsetting the loss of labor and they are allowing households also to hire labor and, and when it's locally available and also um, to reinvest into the farm. Uh, used to purchase farm inputs like improved seeds, like pesticides, and even assets like livestock or, or water tanks. This situation is a bit different in Burkina, where households are not really labor constraints because the migrants return during farming season to help out. And the households where migrants don't return, they have found ways to cope by reducing the area under cultivation. Remittances are, however, also very important for these households um, and they use them to cover household needs like food, but also to reinvest on the farm and to, and to buy farm inputs that will increase uh, farm productivity. We also wanted to look at, uh, uh, to take a close look at the impacts on decision making dynamics and see how, how these are influenced by the absence of men. In Kenya, we, we found that indeed women with migrant husbands have increased freedoms and control over farming decisions. But these changes have also been shaped by broader sociocultural changes, like constitutional changes that recognize women's land rights and uh, laws prosecuting domestic violence, also increased awareness of gender issues and women's rights in general. 
So women consider themselves actually to be knowledgeable on farming. They are interested in farming since they, they are the ones on the farm. And they are also attending training events and getting involved in agricultural projects and interventions. Also, interestingly, migrants are typically supportive of farming, of, of women's farming activities. Um, but there is a downside, though. Uh, women's increased agency in farming decisions comes with increased responsibilities and emotional stress. And this echoes a bit what, what uh, Jordan was mentioning earlier. So women spoke of, of emotional strain and, and making decisions, um, the, this emotional strain of making decisions by themselves and also loneliness, um, especially when the husbands migrate. Um, these changes were not so evident in Burkina. As most migrants are, are young men and, and also are mainly sons, their departure does not really have any significant impact on women's participation in decision making at the, at the intra-household level. Another interesting insight uh, relates to the aspirations of the men and women staying in the farm. And here we found that while in Burkina, women and men who remain on the farm seek to continue farming and investing in their farm over time. In Kenya, it was mostly women, and, and mostly women over 25 years old, whose aspirations related to farm and agriculture. Most of them actually aspire to become large-scale farmers, while men of the same age aspire to options outside of farming, and so farming only as a secondary activity. We believe this likely reflects women's role as farm managers, as well as a persistent as persistent negative attitudes towards women migrating, uh, particularly those who are married. The, no, the notion of being trapped in, in farming by social convention was actually substantiated by several women who framed their role in farming in a negative light, even stated that women have no option but to work on their farm. The next slide. So our main messages and the contributions from our comparative study are that uh, migration can and is opening opportunities for rural people, both in and out of agriculture, but it's a complex and diverse process. Um, different types of migration have different effects on a household capacity to invest in farming. But we also found that rural households discover synergies between migration and agriculture rather than seeing them as opposing strategies. And that even though some migrants might be stepping out of farming, they often invest capital into the farms, that uh, the farms that they will one day return to or, or inherit. Um, the second message, and this is also resonating with, with Jordan's um, findings from before, is that there are various and interrelated factors that influence the situation of sending households and the women who remain. So the degree to which migration influences their access to labor, knowledge, um, capital, and even women's involvement in decisions varies with uh, who lives, why they live, uh, where they go and what do they do, and also who stays. Finally, uh, we need to be careful when equating women's greater autonomy in decisions with empowerment. Because while, while migration may create conditions for increased independence for women, it may also come with the price of increased stress and responsibility without sufficient access to the resources required to act, um, with women remaining dependent on remittances, for example. 
Also, men are still seen as the household head and the final decision maker. And also, social norms continue to limit women's own possibility of migrating and leaving them somehow trapped in agriculture. And that's, that's all for me. For me, thanks. Great. Thanks so much, Ana Maria. Uh, Marcus, we'll move on to you, please. Great, thank you. I hope you can all hear me. So, uh, yeah, my name is Marcus. Uh, I'm presenting this study on behalf of our team, uh, which is consisting also of Eliana Monteroso and Kartika Juniwati. Um, could you go to the next slide, please? Um, so, I, I mean, I think that Indonesia is an interesting country for studying the gendered evolution of, of agricultural labor because so over the past decades, there's been a sort of steady decline of agriculture, both in terms of a share of the BMP, but also a share of uh, male and female employment. Uh, but at the same time, there have been um, recent studies that have pointed at the continued importance of agriculture for uh, Indonesian rural women's employment. Um, and we also know that many of the drivers that have been associated with the feminization of agriculture in other countries, like rural outmigration, uh, the expansion of commercial agriculture, et cetera, uh, they're very much present in rural Indonesia. So what we wanted to do was to kind of try and go beyond the sort of national level aggregate numbers of male and female employment uh, and to take a closer look at the way in which the gender division of agricultural labor uh, and non-agricultural labor has evolved over the past decades. Um, so, of course, we owe a lot to the Indonesia Family Life Survey. Um, it's a longitudinal data set and, um, you know, nationally representative at the baseline has data points from every, every seven years from 93 to 2014. Um, so in the interest of time, I'm not going to discuss the methods too much at this stage, but I'm going to instead highlight some of the uh, findings that came out in our analysis. So could you go to the next slide, please? So. First, uh, I think that the longitudinal analysis that we did of, of women and men's work over time, uh, it, it really shows how dynamic rural women and men's participation in agricultural and non-agricultural work is. Um, so this alluvial chart you see here of women's work uh, over time, I think illustrates this quite well. So I'm going to give just a few illustrative findings from the, from the longitudinal analysis. Um, and because looking at that data, we found that while for example, what quite a significant share of women are in housekeeping at any given point, as you can see, for example, in, in this chart here. Only 4% of the women who are who are part of the sample don't work at any point during the survey period. So, so I mean, almost everyone is working at some point during their, uh, even during this 20-year uh, period. Uh, and while especially younger women are sort of who are joining the labor force after uh, childbearing years, they're increasing, they're joining the non-agricultural sector over the agricultural sector. Three quarters of all of the sampled rural women, uh, rural married women, I should say, uh, it, you know, work in agriculture at least once during this 21-year period. So, so it's really kind of points at the continued importance of agriculture to rural women's work at some points during their lives. For men, uh, one particularly interesting finding, I think, was that 40% of all of the men who were in agriculture at the 93 baseline 
they moved to non-agricultural work, uh, either in 2000 or 2007. And out of those, 60% switch back to agriculture again at an older age. So this particularly is something that, uh, that elder men, older men do. So I think this really kind of taken together underscores the importance of understanding the dynamics of participation in the context of life cycles and also kind of increasingly engaging with the diversity uh, and di different, uh, diversification in rural household livelihood strategies. Uh, and so in order to see how these trends play out at the household level, uh, we conducted then a dyadic analysis where we uh, matched husband and wife at different points in time. And what this shows is, as you can see in the graph below, um, the main growing trend uh, is kind of having both husband and wife in non-agricultural work. So this is the dark blue line you see there. Uh, but from a feminization perspective, I think it's quite interesting to look at the uh, orange line at the bottom, which is the relative distribution of households where the household, where the husband is in non-agricultural work and the wife is in agriculture. And as you can see, there's kind of no real increase in the share of these types of households. And in fact, the opposite, uh, which is the yellow line above, is, is more common. So next slide, please. So we also wanted to understand how the house, husband's absence, uh, you know, either through migration or through death, uh, divorce or death, uh, how that shapes uh, women's agricultural work. So we broke down agricultural work into different uh, employment categories uh, and ran a multinomial logistic regression with both the husband location as well as uh, the household wealth status to get a better sense of what agricultural work looks like for women who are sort of uh, within quotation marks left behind. And so just a quick point here, I think first, as you see in the family worker category, um, women across all wealth categories are by, by far you know, most likely to be family workers when their husbands are present in the household. And while this kind of naturally decreases for women with no or uh, absent house husbands, it's quite interesting to note that so women with absent husbands are by far likeliest to be self-employed with help. And this likelihood is increasing with wealth, uh, you know, which kind of potentially speaks to the role of, uh, of remittances. Uh, but while this is also the most common category for, for women with no husbands, uh, so divorced or widowed in our sample, um, casual work actually becomes increasingly sort of prominent, particularly among poorer women with no husbands. Uh, and then if you include non-agricultural work, which you don't see in this table here, we found that having no husband is also significantly and positively correlated with moving to non-agriculture. So when you take this together, it kind of speaks to the challenges that we, uh, widowed or divorced women might face in terms of maintaining agricultural livelihoods. So in terms of insights, I mean, why we don't really find any support for a feminization trend in Indonesia, I think what would generate are some quite interesting insights into the topic of feminization of agriculture. Um, I mean, thinking of the diversity and the dynamism in rural household participation, um, you know, in their participation in agricultural and non-agricultural work over time, uh, you know, for instance, the tendency for men to kind of seek retirement in agriculture, you know, what does it mean then when we talk about men or women leaving agriculture? 
And so perhaps, you know, instead of focusing only on the role of agriculture in terms of, you know, employment at a national scale, I think that dynamic and diverse participation that we show, I think it calls for sort of more attention to how the role of agriculture is being redefined in rural women and men's livelihood strategies over time. And kind of second, I think, as Rhiannon mentioned, you know, a lot of the focus of studies in feminization has been about the outcomes for the women who are left behind, you know, the two different narratives that she mentioned. And I think here, too, we really highlight the importance of understanding, you know, who is being left behind, how are they being left behind, and kind of how all of this together shapes the outcomes in terms of women's work. And so kind of really trying to f f both find more sophisticated quantitative methods, but also complementing these type of larger scale quantitative work with, for example, the types of approaches that Anna Maria just presented. And Finally, just, I mean, I think that when we engage with social differentiation and sort of temporal life cycle dimensions, um, I think it can help us identify, you know, super important and very, very much policy relevant gender dynamics, even those, even when those aren't, uh, you know, necessarily visible in national level statistics. So that's all for me. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much, Marcus. Uh, now we'll move on to the last presentation uh, from Nozomi. Oh, sorry, Nozomi, I'm just thinking, oh, there we go. Good, over to you, Nozomi. Uh, yes, thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm going to present our study conducted in Vietnam with my colleagues from ICRA, Elizabeth and Tuan. The key research question we address in this presentation is when the strong arms leave the farms, what happens with farming and domestic work? This is a small case study. The study was conducted in two contrasting provinces. One is Dien Bien, where ethnic minority men go to neighboring district towns and cities. Another province is Hatin. Hatin is a disaster-prone coastal province, and international migration is very common. As you may remember, 39 Vietnamese migrants died inside of a lorry in Essex in UK two years ago. They were from this region. For research method, this case study included household surveys of 100, around 100 households in one community from each province and 12 in-depth interviews for each. Half of respondents are women. Next slide, please. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, yes. Uh, when the strong arms leave the farms for international migration, the households change the cropping system. In the typical cases, before men leave the farms, they invest in nurseries for timbers and fruit trees. During their absence, women do other business and sometimes look after their farms. When they return, trees and fruits are ready to harvest. In this way, they get rid of peasant farmers and becoming traders or business owners. There are a few cases where women go to international migration uh, to Middle East. In this case, however, women do not show off 
their success with material assets, unlike men. And some savings from remittances are given to their husband for their business, while the rest is kept for women's own business investment, such as a grocery store or opening a restaurant. The second case is for poor households who cannot afford the commission fees to go to abroad. They do casual labor work in somewhere and come back during planting and harvesting seasons. This is the same for both men's migration and women's migration. In this case, incomes from urban migration can help cope with poverty, but not getting rid of it. They might be able to buy livestock if you are lucky enough, but not all cases. In both cases, however, men control the farms either remotely or by physical presence, especially for cash crops. Next slide, please. So who take care of the farms and housework when the strong arms leave the farms? The household survey results shows that over 70% of households have support from relatives, around two, two to three people, both men and women, with either exchange labor or unpaid labor. Hired labor is less common, only 4% in Dien and 24% uh, in Hattin province as options options that they they can afford higher labor. Qualitative research uh, shows that women are mobilized as exchange or unpaid labor, both unmarried and married, and the young and old. They do both farming and domestic work, in particular daughter-in-laws. In daughter-in-law have the heavy labor burden to compensate their husband's absence, their brother's absence, their brother-in-law's absence. Next slide, please. So in this last slide, I'm going to talk about insight and implications. International migration is a significant driver for agrarian change as it transforms not only cropping systems, but also their livelihood from peasant farmers to business owners. However, it also creates differentiated accumulation of wealth and widen the gap between the poor and the rich in the socialist Vietnam context. We now in CG discuss a lot about innovation offer. Innovations for the poor and innovation for women are really missing, and we need to critically assess if proposed innovations are suitable and meet their needs. Feminization of agriculture, I'm saying in terms of labor, is taking place silently among the poor households. Why invisible? Because it is unpaid exchange labor or unpaid uh, exchange labor. And those, those work are considered as part of reproduction instead of production. Lastly, uh, this research confirms that uh, production and reproduction are closely related with each other, determining women's choices and decisions on migration, their labor and time. The analysis of livelihood without looking at reproduction it cannot have a full picture of gendered rural landscapes and agriculture. I emphasize the importance of reproduction in agricultural research. 
We published two journal articles, uh, one working paper, four videos, uh, one master thesis, and one outreach materials. That um, We had a lot of uh, findings, but today I've only focused on small key things. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you so much, Nozomi, and, and all of the speakers for your uh, your presentations and showed really the rich um, uh, findings coming out of these these five studies. So to with that, I want to turn to to Cheryl, uh, Cheryl Doss, to um, share some reflections looking across all five um, presentations. And then we'll we'll open up for the, the Q&A. Cheryl, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, so it's really exciting to hear the summaries of this. I've been part of the processes of these papers and thinking about what kinds of questions people were asking since the beginning of it. So it's nice to see the short summaries of what people think that they've found. What we're really looking at here is this question about what happens in rural communities when outmigration occurs. Um, and I think one of the questions that we've all had is to what extent is the feminization of agriculture, that concept, um, a useful framing for this? Does thinking about it in terms of the feminization of agriculture help us in our understanding or does it, does it get in the way? And I think we, the work today, it's very, very rich, but there's kind of three pieces of it that I think are really interesting that have come out. One is thinking about what happens to labor patterns in the sending communities, in the rural communities. What actually happens to agriculture? So not to the people, but to the agricultural production systems. And then also thinking about the institutions and how they change. So a number of the papers look at questions about what happens to labor. Um, when people migrate out and most of the story that Right. The feminization of, of agriculture story is a story about men moving out. We see that at least in some places and sometimes the women are the ones who are moving out, which really pushes us to think more broadly rather than framing it as the feminization of agriculture. But to think about what happens when people move out of agriculture and leave part of their households remaining um, in the rural communities. Those questions about who's doing what work is really an important one. How does that change when somebody leaves? And specifically thinking about the gender patterns, but also the patterns across age. And those are going to depend in part on who it is that's migrating out. Are they uh, men who are married? Are they young men or women? Who are the people that are that are leaving? And I think we get real insights here um, from these studies because they consider both these national level patterns. What can we see when we look at the national level data um, as well as the more local level patterns? I think some of what some of the research that gets done looks at what's happening in a particular location and then tries to generalize that more broadly. And what we see here today is that there's just a rich variety of kind of patterns that are happening at, at the local level and not all of them translate into things that are visible in the national level data. We also need to see more than just the overall patterns, right, of whether um, what's changing in terms of the percentage of women who are working in agriculture or the percentage of people working in agriculture who are women, 
Um, but which women and which men are doing the work in these communities? Um, and I particularly like Marcus's diagram that shows how over time we see people, particular individuals moving from agriculture into something else, but sometimes back into agriculture and these life cycle, life cycle patterns, but also patterns as the world changes. We also really learn, I think, from all of these studies that it's really important to see both the quantitative, um, both the national level statistical data, kind of looking at those patterns, as well as the more localized and detailed statistical data, as well as the real rich nuance that we get from the qualitative data. And putting those together gives us much better insights into what is happening. I think one of the challenges that we that we face in doing the, the larger sample quantitative things is that I think we see that as these migration patterns happen, not only does the work that people are doing change within the rural communities, but also their own understandings of their work. So that it might be that women who have, even if they didn't change over time, what work, agricultural work they were doing as their husband is away and they're taking more responsibility or not seeing him as being as in charge, that's going to change their understanding and how they're reporting the same levels of work in the quantitative data. So I think the more we know about the local level, the more challenging it is and the more thoughtful we have to be about the quantitative data that we're using. I I think the other piece of the story that we get somewhat out of these comparatives is that Part of the story for whether this migration out is good or bad for women or the rural communities in general is that question of whether those remittances um, that are being sent back, can they be productively invested in agriculture? Is there potential in these areas for a dynamic agricultural sector taking advantage of the remittance income? Or are these places simply kind of holding patterns where it's fairly cheap to keep children and older people um, in place while they're being supported on remittances. We don't often look at those underlying conditions in those areas, but part of the story about whether this is good or bad for women and, and everybody else who's remaining is about what the potential is in those particular areas. And as we've seen from some of these studies, those questions of how much money do they have to begin with? Um, Nozomi talked about this. Can you pay the fees to do international migration, which gives you much higher remittances on average, um, will depend on your initial starting place. How much money do you have? Um, so I think we've got really interesting information coming out of this work that's starting to document some of these broader patterns about labor challenging us to think about them more carefully um, and thinking about those where it is that this out-migration has the potential to be really empowering and start dynamic change in the local areas or where it's simply um, disempowering. The second set of broad issues, and I'm going to be shorter on these last two, is about how agricultural production is changing in response to out-migration. One of the stories about the feminization of agriculture is that the the strong arms are moving out of agriculture. And so these 
women are left behind trying to do everything without any access to resources, but but that they're trying to do exactly what was happening beforehand and just simply not doing it very well. Not only because they have less labor, but also because typically women have less access to credit extension, all of these other kinds of things. And I think we need to see these patterns, again, as Nozomi's paper really suggested, as the the patterns of agriculture in the rural areas are changing and are changing along with um, as part of the dynamic processes of people migrating out. Um, so we not only see people growing different crops as some people migrate out, but the whole agricultural product production system can be changing. So I think this really urges us to be cautious um, when we start comparing before and after. Um, if we start saying, look, now that the men have migrated out, there's less rice or wheat or a cash crop being grown than there was before. We need to look at kind of the overall pictures of what is being grown, because often people are going to switch crops, which crops they're growing in those areas. And we, we need to pay more attention to that, I think. Um, I think the, the third set of questions is about how other institutions in rural areas are changing. Um, and Wei talked about this at the beginning, really thinking about the governance of water associations. And these were traditionally male, male dominated associations making decisions about, about irrigation and what happens as the men migrate out. How do these associations change in response to that? How do they start to incorporate Women, the ones that are successful, figure out how to include everybody into them um, by changing the governance, by changing some of the rules, by changing how things work. Um, but to think really, and I think we have a lot more work to do to understand how these institutions um, change. The other set of institutions that are changing um, are institutions around the social norms, right, and how these change. What's acceptable for women to be doing if they're still in the rural areas and there's fewer men? What's acceptable for men to be doing when they're still in the rural areas? What are the norms about work and mobility and control over money and how these are changing in response to men migrating out, but also part of the whole processes, right? We see lots of contexts in which the people who are remaining in the rural areas are the ones who have actually come up with the money to send the men out to migrate. Um, so they're not simply left behind, but they have their own, they have agency and are part of these processes. I, I think this work really tells, shows us that we need both these comparative analyses. Um, we need as well as the rich detail in the particular area. One of the things that we've done in this overall project where we, where we had nine projects where we've been in conversation with each other is we started by talking about what are the kind of dimensions that we need to look at across these different kinds of contexts. And I think it doing that at the beginning helped us to we had long conversations about what words we should be using and what pieces were important and how do we make sure that everybody's thinking about what pieces might be important so that things don't get left out. Um, my own answer to the question of whether thinking about the feminization um, and whether feminization of agriculture is a useful way 
to understand what's changing in rural areas is that what it does talk about the feminization of agriculture is it means that we have to think about gender relations. And I think that part of it's really useful. I think that sometimes it causes us to look at things that are too narrow and it's much more useful to look at these broader labor patterns. How are the labor patterns? How are the agricultural systems and local institutions all changing? What are the dynamic processes? How are those changing in response to migration out? And how are they creating um, situations where people migrate out? I also think there's quite a bit of work that should be done on what happens when there's female out migration. Much of the work that talks, that looks at what happens when women move out is asking who does the care work? Um, how does, how do the dishes get done if the women move out? And, and Nozomi's had a bit on this. Um, but there's less work that look, less that really thinks about what happens to the agricultural systems when women are the ones moving out? Does it have any impact on them? Um, we know that women have been very much engaged in these agricultural systems initially. Um, so they're moving out must have some impact and we need to think about those. And just to continue to really think about these intra-household dynamics and how they change. So I will stop there, but thank you to the five um teams that presented today it's really exciting to see where this work is is going great and frank i'll i'll pass the baton then back back yep. to you for the q and a okay great no thanks very much and uh cheryl thanks to you i think you uh by noting down your three broad categories i think I'm trying to actually to see if I can organize the questions that have come in around those three key topics of labor, uh, production systems, and institutions. So um, there were a few, a couple of questions, though, that were came in about the nature of uh, migration patterns themselves. So one came in from uh, Ramya Ambikapathy who asked, um, are there any differences in demographics of households with male versus female migration? So this is pertaining to all the, the, uh, the speakers. And then a, a one that came in from uh, Victor Camaro was pitched at a, at a bit higher level of, of not household demographics, but he, he notes that uh, migration, he assumes that migration is kind of a constant in, in most agri-based agri uh, rural communities and societies. So is there a way to discover patterns that goes beyond a bit place-based uh, definitions that you have of movement from one area to another? For example, are there, are there some key um, push factors in certain communities uh, that might have, um, you know, made certain uh, areas more prone to have out-migration, like um, errant rains, droughts, and other factors? Um, so, and then... In, the, in those cases, would those associations of either factors at these community or higher levels or within the households themselves then, in fact, also um, have some kind of uh, determination on, on how things might be affected in the ascending communities? themselves. So, for example, if, the, if there was some uh, climate issues in, in areas that tended to send people, then would that not put more, uh, uh, just, you know, uh, distress or, or more difficult conditions on those who remain behind, So, for example. So, um, 
So that's the first round of questions, and I'll come back with a couple uh, later. So if anybody, you know, wants to tackle either one of those, please go ahead. Uh, yes, go ahead, Nozomi. Uh, yes, I think in the case of Vietnam, migration patterns are highly uh, social networks based based on social networks. So in one community, if somebody is successful in Japan, everybody, the young man is successful in Japan, then everybody go to Japan. And another community, if somebody go to Africa, and everybody go to Africa. Even my, my, my the case study areas are like that, but the next district, there is a community, all women go to Thailand informally. So I think it is a kind of a social network's influence and other people's uh, success uh, based on that. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else want to uh, address that? About characteristics of the sending communities or the sending households? I mean, Jordan had mentioned remoteness as one issue, I guess. Go ahead, Jordan. Yeah. yeah. Can I? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we haven't yet seen any kind of, you know, systematic differences in the characteristics of households with respect to uh, female outmigration or male outmigration. There does seem to be a lot of, kind of you know, a path dependence and the kind of options that are available, and some of those are gender, right? So, so again, you know, the Ethiopia experience. Some communities have kind of, you know, forged this. This pathway to um, for for women to to work as domestics in in the Near East and, and more women are migrating out of those communities as a result, right? So so you see these kind of systematic differences, but not so much at the household level that I've seen so far. Um, there's lots of studies that have kind of documented push factors. Um, what the, the work that we're trying to do. Um, you know, so we've seen this strong kind of um, remoteness gradient where both the types of of migration, the destinations, the motives, it, it's varying uh, pretty strongly as you move further away from opportunities, if you like. So the most remote areas have lower rates of out-migration, but these are also typically the areas, not always, right, um, that, that have, you know, what, where you would expect the push factors to be higher. So agriculture tends to be less dynamic in these places. There are fewer out-farm opportunities. Um, so I, I think that, you know, while, while, you know, you can kind of nail everything down and, and look for partial effects and you'll get a story on some push factors, I think that the way that it plays out is actually is, it's really complex. Um, I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, but it is something that we're thinking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll go to Wei, and then I'll go to another round of questions, I think, so we can move through them. Go ahead, okay. Wei. Yeah, well, I'll just um, add a point, Paul, um, that uh, uh, patriarchal norms are um, uh, also playing a role in terms of uh, push factors um, influencing migration uh, decisions, um, patriarchal norms are much stronger, for example, in high class uh, groups, uh, less strong among elite uh, caste, which is uh, low caste, where families are uh, historically too poor to to keep um, uh, women at home. And um, 
and and kill uh, ethnic groups. Um, so th there is this um, norm um, associated factors affecting how um, you know what what kind of migration decisions. And um, re in relation to that, there's uh, intersectionality uh, because gender, caste, ethnicity, and poverty they all affect these gender norms and women participation. Great. Thanks very much. Um, let me um, ask a couple of questions related to the, the topic of uh, labor patterns. So one question that came in, um, uh, uh, a couple of questions actually from Ramya Ambikapati again. Uh, one was, um, uh, it, how are women's opportunities and agencies changing as agriculture becomes more specialized. So I, I think this may refer also to the Vietnam case, but perhaps others where, 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 where there's some dynamism in the, in the agricultural uh, community and, and, and landscapes. Then a second question is, what are the employment opportunities, what, what oppor employment opportunities do women take up in Nepal versus Ethiopia? And, and, and let's say the other uh, countries in general that were covered in Africa, Burkina and, and, and Kenya. We heard in the case of um, Indonesia and in Vietnam that there was quite a bit of shift from agriculture to non-agriculture. We didn't really necessarily hear that in the African cases or in Nepal, um, where was the focus was really on, on the effects in the agriculture. But it was, is there any evidence that you have that there's any shift to non-agriculture because as we know rural households are very um, you know uh, diverse in their livelihood strategies since the, with the small farms it's, it doesn't generate a livelihood so um, and I was wondering uh, in that case too if maybe um, also uh, to not leave out Vietnam and Indonesia from that question is could could that be related to the the, the degree of progress in terms of rural transformation um, that just these non-pharma opportunities are much greater in Indonesia and Vietnam, say, than other, in other countries. So uh, over to all of you on these labor questions. If anybody wants to pick that up. Marcus, go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, th thanks for the question. I can I can just mention a little bit, um, like you like you alluded to, Frank. Uh, I mean, what we really see in Indonesia is is that um, I mean, we didn't break down the um, the the non agricultural employment by sector. Um, so definitely, that's that's something that that would be interesting to look at more in detail. But what you do see is that there is a sort of trend, especially among younger women. So women who, uh, so, cause you kind of see in Indonesia when women are sort of younger and, 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 and married, uh, at this early stage of marriage, uh, many of them are not in the labor force. And so as they, as this younger cohort then joins the labor force, they increasingly are now joining the non-agricultural, uh, sector, which I think might very well be speaking to the fact that there are sort of more non-agricultural opportunities in, in some of these rural areas. Um, and the other thing I think that was interesting to see too is that for, um, as I mentioned before, that for women, uh, who, uh, are divorced or, or, or married, uh, um, widowed, uh, they too, um, are, tend to sort of move towards the non-agricultural sector 
rather than staying in agricultural sectors. So that too is, is a factor that kind of seems to be speaking to um, the the fact that agricultural, it, it women seem to have, uh, they're, they're, it seems to be difficult to continue um, agricultural uh, agricultural work, especially as your main employment. Uh, once uh, once you no longer have um, a husband in your in your household. So over. Thanks, and Anna Maria. Yeah. yeah. And then. Yeah, uh, I wanted to 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 mention, especially especially for Kenya, um, the we see that migration is, is happening to urban areas, so, so to cities like Nairobi and Mombasa, and, and men are taking up non-agricultural jobs um, as guards, as gardeners, mechanics, um, this kind of, 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 of jobs. And, and then we also found, interestingly, that um, they actually found wives, they find their wives, uh, while being in, the, in these urban centers, and then after after the couple gets married, then um, usually the wife returns to the original village where where they come from to take care of the land uh, or to or to kind of um, maintain that claim of on the land that that the that the husband is is going to inherit one day and um, and to take care of it and farm it and and make it productive so so we we do see a bit of a of a shift on on women coming back to agriculture after they get married um after they have also moved for off farm employment um, as as men uh, in their younger years um although um it is definitely much more common than men are 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 are, are taking up, are, are migrating, or looking for these off-farm opportunities um, is much more common for men than for women. Even even though we we see this 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 thing happening, um, yeah. So and and I was also going to to add um, regarding the capacities, the strengthening capacities of women, and how this this changes. Uh, I think also one thing that was very important that we found is that. The, answers, the absence of men uh, from the farm was opening the opportunity for uh, for women to participate and uh, to participate, for example, in agricultural projects and uh, to attend training events, capacity development events, who probably wouldn't they wouldn't have attended before because their husbands uh, would have. Um, so the the absence of the husbands or or, or a male. Um, uh, adult in the household was opening opportunities for them to to then access this this uh, this this uh, extension of, of offers or, or accelerating more acknowledged in general. Good, thanks. I think Jordan wanted to say something, and also Nozomi, right? Okay. Uh, you're muted, I think. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, no, I mean super. Very interesting question. I mean, what, what we do know kind of generally is that, you know, the, the share of income from non-farm sources is, is growing. Um, survey data tell us that, um, you know, so 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 the, the rural economies are increasingly non-farm, right? Um, although that's still a minority in most places. Um, we also know that, that men are more likely to take advantages of, of wage um, 
wage opportunities in the non-farm sector. I'm talking about Africa now. But that may be changing, and we haven't looked at that closely, and we haven't looked at, at least my team hasn't looked at that in the context of the feminization of agriculture yet. So I think that's a really great question. But there's two other kind of linkages that I think are interesting. One is that in some cases, the non-farm opportunities, you know, seem to have preferential access to women. So I'm thinking of flower farms and horticulture operations in Ethiopia and Kenya, tea estates, you know, hire a lot of women. So where those kinds of opportunities tend to be clustered, they're not found everywhere, but that may be an interesting thing to look at. I guess the final point that I wanted to mention, one thing that Cheryl reminded me of in her comments, but I didn't mention in our study, although we've looked at it, and I didn't hear much of it, is what's happening with rural-rural movement. So most people who move out of rural areas in Africa are moving to other rural areas. It's about two-thirds, you know, where you have data to work with. And so that suggests that some areas may be losing people and other areas are gaining. So it puts another spin on this. What we do know is that people tend to move into, you know, this rural-rural movement tends to be associated with non-farm opportunities as well. So, I mean, there are a bunch of interesting pieces there that I think are all very relevant and taking notes about things that I want to look at. Good, thanks. Nozomi? Yes, perhaps Vietnam has a lot of non-farm opportunities compared to sub-Saharan Africa. There are a lot of industrial zones, factories, even domestic, but they also go for international. And there are some areas they heavily focus on agriculture, actually, for export horticulture business. But, however, even those areas, one of our family members migrate, that is very natural. So migration and non-farm income sources increase that, however, but agriculture is still important part of their livelihood. I emphasize that. Thank you. Thanks. I do want to, we are running out of time, but I really want to cover two more questions at least. There's two on the production system that I think are very interesting for all of, for you to respond to. So one from David Harris came in and said, are the situations described here today generally conducive to the level of agricultural intensification that is needed to meet the SDGs? So reflecting upon, you know, the changes in the production systems, how is that, is that advancing households, communities, and countries to meeting the SDGs? And then from Victor Comerill was a related question. So I guess he says one of the, so the big challenge is how to improve labor productivity in agro-rural areas using the talents of everyone, men, women, old, young, you know, majorities, minorities, et cetera. So what are your, you know, reflections on how to best use that talent? And I think it does relate a little bit quite to Dave Harris's question as well about, so what does this really mean in terms of, you know, transformation and economic progress? Let's put it that way. So over to you. Anybody wants to pick those up? And try to be brief because we're running out of time. Yeah, Marcus, go ahead first. Yeah, I'll just say very briefly. I mean, 
on the SDG question, I think I mean one of the one of the things that kind of has been discussed in the context of Indonesia has been the sort of aging farming population um, and and the impact of that in terms of affecting uh, the ability of, of achieving uh, the, the the you know uh, how that in, in influences um the productions and and i think one thing that kind of we're able to add to that is that it's not just a factor of or not necessarily just a result of young people choosing non-agricultural life livelihoods over agricultural livelihoods but also uh you have uh people who return to agriculture to kind of retire in agriculture and a higher portion of the agricultural labor force are made up of these types of these types of farmers so i think that's just um one thing i'd mention here Good. Anyone else? Yeah, I mean, just so on, on, on Dave's question, I, I mean, it's it's a really good one. I, I don't know that, you know, we've, you know, how we would map, I mean, it's a challenge, how, how to map the kind of, you know, the, our, our work on the feminization of agriculture onto kind of a real transformation story in terms of productivity and technology change and all that, other than, you know, we, we've kind of talked about, you know, Cheryl mentioned kind of looking more closely at, at portfolio changes and technology changes and it, but i agree with marcus i mean so clearly um you know migration per se maybe not male out migration you know kind of narrowly focused on that but but migration is, is playing a hugely important role in the ongoing transformation of rural economies in africa um both through you know remittances and coming back later on i mean in in a whole separate kind of bundle of work on, on medium scale farms it seems that that a lot of a lot of um, these very productive investments sometimes are coming from from urban-based people that still have one foot in kind of ancestral villages or villages that they may have left at the start of a of a non-farm career, and they're coming back many years later. So that kind of you know capital injection is really important. Um, and kind of more generally, I mean, we talked about rural, rural movements. I mean, to the extent that migration is facilitating you know the ability of of labor to respond to opportunities. Um, you know, that's, that's in principle kind of in, you know, that's working with kind of virtuous processes of, of, of rural transformation. But, um, yeah, so I, I don't know that I have anything more to say about that, but it's, it's clearly, um, this is part of the, of a broader way of thinking about rural transformation. Mm -hmm. Any other comments from, uh, the others before we wrap up, um, Nozomi? Okay, uh, I'll just pass it around to everybody for brief. Yeah. Okay, Go ahead. for agriculture intensification, I think we have to be very careful to introduce uh, something, uh, intensification, because farmers now have a lot of options, rather than, for example, winter season, rather than cropping uh, winter crops like potatoes, it's better to go to factories uh, so that the income is much higher. So those things we are competing with non-farm uh, sectors that, that need to be considered. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, then Anna Maria and then Wei and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, um, I, I just wanted to echo the, what Marcus was, was mentioned at the beginning that many, many, many of these male migrants are planning to return eventually to their farms and and they are investing on their farm while being away so growing maybe the land they are doing they are investing on livestock growing the, the asset and the wealth that they have to be able to 
to return eventually and make a, a, a more successful business of it eventually. So I, I do think that the the uh, migration and the and the availability of remittances and also the availability of labor at the local level would would be um, uh, key to to um, to open opportunities for this intensification. So, so it, it's an actually a contributor to intensification, given those those factors that there is there is available uh, labor at the local level anyway, and that the, the remittances are sufficient. Mm -hmm. Great, thanks. And Wei? Yes, thanks. I'll, I'll make a point about mechanization. Uh, mechanization not only directly uh, uh, improves productivity, but also through some chains. For example, uh, uh, it reduces the, the need for um, bulls to plow the land. That, that kind of shift in livestock keeping uh, methods help reduce women's time and labor on, on, on livestock, uh, so that further, uh, uh, you know, helped, um, you know, with productivity increase. So this both direct and indirect channels that these um, intensification or, or mechanization uh, can uh, uh, help improve productivity. So migration um, acts as a uh, catalyst or accelerator, and through the remittances income, it helps in enable some of these mechanization. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks uh, Thanks to all the, the speakers, and thanks uh, for all the people submitting their questions. I couldn't get to all of them, but we at least met, went through a, a majority of them. We'll try to see if we can get to the others uh, answered and, and, and circulated. Um, can Before I just uh, uh, finally close, can I ask if Rhiannon and Cheryl wanted to um, actually also uh, make a comment or two on any of the questions in the discussion? I think it's been quite quite well discussed, so thanks. Okay. All yeah, right. I also don't have well, anything good. to add, but thank you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks very much to all the, the speakers that discuss and then to the, to, to, uh, to Rhiannon for moderating and opening it as well. And, um, so just as in closing, um, uh, just a, a reminder that we have recorded this. If people want to look back at it or, or, or send the link to their, to colleagues who couldn't make it. And, uh, just another reminder that the other four case studies who were not, that were not presented today will be presented on July 7th. So be on the lookout for a uh, communication about that. So with that, thanks very much and have a great day or evening wherever you are.